1: This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio.
0: This week on Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio, I have a very special guest. Yes, I know you're all going to make fun of me. Once again, I'm saying I have a very special guest. But when you hear my conversation with my guest, you will agree this is a very special guest. Howard Marks, chairman, co-founder, Oaktree Capital. His firm uh, has put up an absolutely astonishing track record of long-term performance in the debt market. He's been running the firm for 22 years. They've put up phenomenal numbers. Nobody is really even close to them. Uh, and and when you consider that it's in debt and not equity, the numbers are even more astonishing. I, I found Howard to be extremely thoughtful, intelligent. Uh, forthcoming individual, not a lot of people who are in his circumstances uh, tend to be as just transparent and open. And, you know, he just lays his cards out on the table. Uh, I think you'll find his discussion on second level thinking to be very worthwhile, as well as his explanation for how and why investors uh, become successful. You know, there are a lot of people uh, who are smart guys, who are hardworking, uh, who, who ply their, their field in the um, industry of, of investing in finance, and they end up putting out numbers that are, you know, fair at best. And Howard explains what you need to do if you want to outperform. I especially am fond of his discussion on predictions and the folly of forecasts, it's a little bit of a confirmation bias on my time, my my part, as well as his discussion on, on risk and risk management. I, I found that absolutely fascinating, and I think you will as well. So without any further ado, here is my conversation with Howard Marks of Oaktree Capital.
1: This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio.
0: My special guest today, is truly a special guest. His name is Howard Marks and he runs Oak Tree Capital. Let me give a short version of Howard's curriculum vitae, which is quite lengthy. Um, Graduated from Wharton at the University of Pennsylvania, cum laude in 1967, a major in finance and a minor in Japanese studies. Got his MBA from the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. Worked as an equity research analyst at Citicorp for the next decade. Before he became director of research, ultimately uh, became vice president and senior portfolio manager for convertible and high-yield securities, left to lead the distressed asset group at Trust Company of the West. Did you lead that group or set it up? We'll we'll get into that. We'll get into a little more details about that. And then in 1995, he left Trust Company of the West to set up Oak Tree Capital, Uh, which runs a high-yield bond fund, distressed debt, private equity, and other strategies, and has put up some astonishing performance numbers. The 17 distressed debt funds that Oaktree has ranked up annual gains of 19% after fees for the past 22 years, far outpacing its peers. Howard Marks, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you, Barry. So, Let's get into a little bit about your background. Obviously, Wharton and then a uh, MBA suggests you had been thinking about finance. Were there ever any plans to do anything besides uh, go into asset management?
1: Well, I wasn't one of these kids who was uh, reading prospectuses at nine, you know. Right. Uh, first, I wanted to be a, a high school history professor. Then I wanted to be an architect. I had lots of interests. And then I, then when I got serious, I thought I'd be an accountant because that's what my dad was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I, I really uh, enjoyed accounting. But when, when I got to Wharton, I switched from accounting to finance in terms of my interest. Uh, when I got out of Chicago, I still didn't know what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I knew it would be in finance, but I applied for six different jobs in six different fields Mm -hmm. of finance.
0: Oh, that's quite interesting. What other fields were you looking at?
1: Uh, Accounting, corporate finance, investment banking, consulting, um, great variety.
0: Well, well, you seem to have found your calling to say- uh, I got lucky. To say, and and by the way, that's something that just about every guest I've had has said, never hurts to get lucky and uh, being smart doesn't hurt either. A good combination between the two of them. you began your career. I found this fascinating. You began your career as an equity analyst, and yet when you moved to the Trust Company of the West, you started covering fixed income. How did that transition take place? Well,
1: it's not that interesting a story, but but uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, you know, uh, at a bank, you progress uh, hierarchically. Mm-hmm. So I moved from being a junior analyst to a senior analyst to a unit head to director of research, as you described. The bank didn't do well in that period because we were nifty 50 investors, the 50 sure. biggest, fastest growing, best companies in America. Um, and if you bought them in 68 and you sold them in 73, uh, in the best companies in America, you lost 80, 90% of your money. Wow. Uh, and so that, that didn't work out well. Uh, I was part of that uh, regime. And um, a new guy came in to be chief investment officer and, and he wanted his own director of research. And he said, I'd like you to start a convertible bond fund.
0: Just like that. Just
1: like that. And uh, so I did, uh, it was August the 1st of 78. And then I got a call later that month uh, from, an, from my boss and he said, uh, you know, the, there's some guy in California named Milken or something, and uh, he deals <laughs> in high yield bonds. Can you figure out what that means? Because a client has just asked for a high yield bond portfolio. You know, that was part of my luck. Uh, that was the beginning of the high yield bond industry. That was uh, thirty-seven years ago, mm-hmm. and um, uh, you know almost everything that's been interesting in finance in the last thirty-seven years has gone through uh, the high yield bond market. So it's front row seat on history, and uh, you know part of the luck is to get there early, and I did.
0: And I and I also get the sense that you very much enjoy having that front seat on history in history yes. and and being able to. To be more than a spectator, but an active participant. Right, an
1: active participant, and and and, uh, and uh, somebody who tries to figure out uh, what's going on, not just cope with what's going on, but actually understand it fundamentally, and and as you know, communicate about
0: it. I, I believe you have described that as second degree thinking, uh,
1: second level, second, thing. level thinking. second level thinking, second level thinking. Yes, that's right. Uh, you know, the the real success in investing goes to people who. Who achieve a superior understanding of the things that are going on, why they're going on, and what they mean?
0: Mm-hmm. In other words, not just understand what the crowd knows, right. but a whole level sure. beyond that. Well, it, if you
1: if you think the same as everybody else, you'll behave the same. Mm-hmm. And if you behave the same as everybody else, you can't expect to outperform. Right. Uh, you'll get you'll get average results, but in investing. Um, success consists of having above average results. So you have to get away from the crowd and you have to achieve a higher level of thinking. You know, for example, very simple. Uh, people say it's a great company, you should buy the stock. Second level thinker says it's a great company but it's not as great as everybody thinks, you should sell the stock. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's kind of uh, it's kind of uh, reflexive or counterintuitive.
0: Mm-hmm. I- Doug, Doug Cass, we were discussing, right. a, a mutual friend, calls that variant perception. Right, Looking at things a little differently than everybody else does right. to find the opportunity. That's right. So so speaking of opportunity, you end up at Trust Company of the West and you created the high yield bond fund there, a convertible securities fund. And is this, was this the world's first distressed bond fund? I think it was the first uh,
1: distressed debt fund from a mainstream financial institution. Uh, prior to that, just as our high yield bond fund, that city in 78, was the first one from a financial institution. No bank had ever done it before uh, or trust company. And, uh, and the same was true in, in the distressed debt field. You know, you had your your, your uh, couple of guys uh, at a desk in Greenwich or someplace trading for their own accounts or a few for a few, you know for a small high net worth uh, hedge fund but uh, nobody had ever done it on the institutional scale.
0: You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Howard Marks. He is the founder and chairman of Oaktree Capital. And we were discussing previously, you had set up what turned out to be the largest distressed debt fund right in the midst of the, the financial collapse in 07, 08. What was that like? What sort of pushback did you get from investors? Well, we
1: started to raise... Uh, capital on the first day of 07. Mm-hmm. And things had been going very well in the world. Um, and what happens, of course, is that when things go well, uh, standards decline. Mm-hmm. People require less creditworthiness. They they do riskier deals. They take more risk because what the hell? They figure the more <laughs> risk you take, the more money you make. Uh, we worked Alarmed at that trend, and so we went out to raise a fund on the first day of '07. We said we'd like to raise three billion. Now we had started off in in '88 um, with a ninety-six million dollar fund. We had grown past the billion dollar mark around '95, and here we are in '07. We said we'd like that three billion, um, and uh, within a month, people had offered us eight. And we said we can't take eight. there's nothing to do with eight, but we'll take three and a half and we'll close that fund mm-hmm. and we'll start investing the three and a half billion. and uh, but we asked people to give us the remainder of their commitments for a standby fund that uh, the money that we could have in reserve because we thought there was an opportunity coming. and if it came, we'd like that more money.
0: I think I think that was a little bit of an understatement well, that opportunity, uh yeah came along, it certainly yeah, did later on.
1: It did. So anyway, we had the first closing on, in March of 07 and the last closing in March of 08. And by the time we finished clo- raising money was 10.9 billion, as you know. And that was our fund 7B, we called it. Mm-hmm. And uh, we we told people that we wouldn't raise the, uh, invest the money until there was something good to do with it. And we wouldn't charge any fees until we invested the money. Um, so we waited. Uh, from the March 07 until June of 08 to start investing. And in June of 08, we started to invest gradually. And the fund was 12% called the day Lehman went under, uh, September 15th of uh, 08. And then we really got busy. And (laughs) it was 70% called on December
0: 31st. How long did it take to get fully invested at that point? Well,
1: the last, uh, we never invested the last money.
0: It's oh, an interesting
1: really? story. Yes, because Do we tell. well, we thought that in a real meltdown that cash would be king. Mm-hmm. We would be involved in bankruptcy restructurings and in order to really capitalize on them, you know, in a world where nobody has any money, there's a great premium on having some cash. Sure. So, and we thought that having some cash in reserve could give us real power at the bargaining table. So we we said we're going to leave the last 10% of the fund, which was a billion one, uninvested. So we never did invest that. And those restructurings for the most part never materialized. Hmm. The world turned around much faster than we would have thought.
0: That's quite fascinating. And I mentioned in in the introduction that you have about 17 distressed funds all told, different series. I think that's right. A- and the performance numbers on those funds, and, and uh, we rarely tout performance. We don't like to get into the details too much. But I have to mention these numbers because they're just astonishing. After fees, over the past twenty-two years, your funds have averaged nineteen percent annually. That—that's just extraordinary.
1: Well, my colleagues are exceptional. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: uh, You're just a bystander, just an innocent bystander. Well,
1: the the day to day, the the person who really, uh, you know, I I help uh, set the scene and make the big. Tactical decisions, but the person who actually runs that fund from day to day is Bruce Karsh. Mm-hmm. Uh He's been my partner since '87.
0: One of the co-founders uh, right, of Tree right, as well,
1: he, right? And uh, and uh, he's just he's just an exceptional strategist, you mm-hmm. know, a competitor, uh, you know, chess player, what what have you, and he just figures out how to game these things. Uh, we we've always had a great. Uh, stable of financial analysts that work with us and so you know the key is to do a better job than others of figuring out what the what uh, the company that rises from the ashes of bankruptcy is going to be worth mm-hmm. and how to get a how to get a piece of that cheaply and, uh, and they've been able to do that successfully over the years. Uh, uh, a, very... uh, now I, I agree with you, Barry, that short that performance numbers, we shouldn't dwell on them too much, and I love your reciting hours. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but I would be remiss if I didn't mention the fact that that is an unlevered return. Mm-hmm. In other words, we don't borrow any money to amp up the results. That's mm-hmm. just the result of our investments.
0: Making it even even more extraordinary. So So the secret to your success is a combination of an outstanding team, an uh, uh, excellent assessment of what's going on figuring out the valuation right. of what things are worth and and how do you avoid uh, what's been uh, Dick Thaler called the Thaler called the winner's curse the bidding too much to actually win and finding yourself with something that you ultimately paid too much for
1: I think that the secret to solving all problems st- starts with awareness of that problem mm-hmm. so if you understand that that uh, that winning an auction is not necessarily uh, a, a boon, uh, then you you can develop discipline. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, when we started Oak Tree, we wrote out the, uh, the investment philosophy. There are six tenets to it. It's on the website if anybody wants to look. We've never changed a word in over 20 years. And uh, the first tenet says that, the, that the, our, the, the most important part of our job is risk control. Mm -hmm. So I'm proud of the performance numbers that you reported, but I'm prouder that I believe they have been achieved with the risks under control. Uh, I believe that the first job of the money manager is not to make a lot of money, and it's not to beat the market, and it's not to be in the top quartile. The first job is to control risk. And everybody at Oak Tree believes that, follows that. And uh, I believe that we uh, always have had an, an effective emphasis, on controlling the risk.
0: So now when you describe controlling risk, I, I wanna put a little meat on those bones. Mm-hmm. Are you referring to potential returns relative to the risk you're taking? Are you talking about loss of capital? What exactly is risk right. to someone running other people's money?
1: Well, to me, you know, the the academics define investment risk as volatility. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do not agree. To me, the, the risk that matters is the risk uh, of, of permanent loss. Now there are lots of kinds of risks. And uh, I put out a memo in which I think I, I described 23 or 24 different kinds of risk. But the one that really matters is the risk of permanent loss. And we believe that we can mitigate that risk by picking in the right industries where the values are lasting rather than ephemeral, by buying debt which is at the top in terms of priority rather than at the bottom. Mm by doing rigorous financial analysis, uh, you know, really uh, safety comes from paying less than things are worth and building in a margin of safety. Uh, So only if you fully understand what things are worth, can you buy for less.
0: Welcome to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Howard Marks. He is the founder and chairman of Oak Tree Capital. And before the break, we had been talking about your chairman's memos, which I find to be not only required reading, but absolutely fascinating. Um, why did you start the chairman memo, chairman's memos? What was the thinking behind that?
1: I wish I knew. <laughs> you know, I started 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. I, I certainly can't remember back that long. Uh, what no I, legislative
0: history? No, we don't have any no, notes no, or anything? No. It just started?
1: Well, what I would guess is that, you know, I mean— uh, uh, 25 years ago, I had 20 years in this industry, or 22, mm-hmm. and I was starting to think, to develop a, a philosophy. What did I believe in, what did I stand for, and what did I reject? Uh, and uh, two events occurred uh, where I thought there was something to be learned from the juxtaposition, so I wrote the first memo. 1990. 1990. Uh, I had, I had. Uh, dinner with the uh, chief investment officer of a large pension fund. And he explained to me that in his 14 years on the job, his fund had never been above the 27th percentile or below the 47th percentile. It was solidly in the second quartile Mm -hmm. uh, of pension funds. And as a result for the 14 years overall, he was in the fourth percentile.
0: So in other words, by not having any huge blowout years, which often follows those huge top 10 years- He managed to just gradually rise to the top. yeah, he
1: never had a top ten year. he was he was solidly just just a bit above average. Uh, and in the peculiar math of investing, that made him one of the best in the world.
0: That's amazing
1: and then I came back to New York and i and I read about uh, the president of an investment management firm which was having a particularly bad year that year. and he said, well, you know, he says yes, it's unfortunate, but The truth is, if you wanna be in the top 5% of money managers, you have to be willing to be in the bottom 5%. And I said to myself, I am absolutely unwilling to be in the bottom 5%. I don't care if I'm in the top 5% in any given years. Obviously, my previous discussion had shown that it's not essential, Mm -hmm. uh, but I sure didn't wanna be in the bottom five. So that that was a good look at two different ways to think, and it was clear to me which one had the appeal.
0: So consistency, second quartile over long periods of time, Put you in that top five percent or better,
1: and no blowups,
0: and no blowups. Yeah, so you start these in nineteen ninety. Yeah. This is pre-internet. Are you faxing these? Are you uh, how I'm, how
1: are these going out? I'm 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 writing them up uh, and uh, you know stuffing envelopes mm-hmm. and 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 putting them out on paper and and. Uh, Putting stamps on them and uh, and and throwing them down the drain. Now, why do I say down the drain? <laughs> so,
0: wait, wait. So every quarter, the whole staff gets well, together and stuffing them periodically. So it wasn't wasn't that regular in the beginning? No, but no, at least yes. once a year.
1: I think just once a year in '90 and once a year in '91. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And out they go. And what's the response? None. Zero. Crickets.
1: Zero response. That's why I say throwing them down the drain. Mm-hmm. If, if if for all I knew. They were being held up by the post office,
0: and, and this was going to investors in your fund, yes, and clients of the firm, right. and other assorted friends. No, and, well,
1: yes, uh, clients and and friends,
0: and nobody picked up the phone. Not fund a and response said, that I recall. Because uh, just so you know, in my office, you put out a, a a note, and my head of research comes up to me and said, "Hey, did you see the the Marksa uh, letter?" I, yeah, of course, I saw it this morning. I'm right. on. I'm on the list like anybody else who's half smart has done none of that. You know you no, no. just I, crickets. As I
1: recall it, there wasn't a response in the first ten years.
0: A decade. Yes. So you're just sending these out into mm. the void and literally nothing.
1: And I have no idea what kept me going. Uh you know, with that lack of, of uh of reward.
0: No feedback, none, nothing. None. But it had to be a the process itself had to be somewhat of a reward in yeah. and of itself, yet yeah. enjoy it. Yes. You you clearly are a gifted writer. You like putting words on paper. There had to be something, right. Yes. although I would tell you it has to be a little right. funny, not here. So when did you first start to see- It's kind some, of like
1: if you were on the radio and you just spoke and nobody spoke back. Right. By the way, <laughs> nobody is- I know. You
0: should know that we're not broadcasting this. This is just for my own private collection. Um. Right. good. Uh, so, so what finally generates a response? When do you finally hear that- hey, somebody's reading these things. Uh, Well,
1: I was working on a memo and I put it out on the first day of 2000. Mm -hmm. And it was called bubble.com. And basically what it said is that there's so much buzz and hype around technology that I think it's overdone and I think it's gonna cause a problem for the people who are following it uh, blindly. And uh, that memo had two virtues. It was right and it was right soon. Uh, Being right is not enough because if it takes you two, three, four years to be right, everybody's forgotten you by the time the events uh, comply with your uh, forecast. In in
0: trading, right plus early equals wrong. (laughs) Right. Uh, But, uh, you know, uh, the the tech stocks collapsed
1: sometime around the second quarter of 2000 and and, uh, as I think I wrote in the introduction to my book, after 10 years I became an overnight success.
0: There you go. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Howard Marks. He is the founder and chairman of Oaktree Capital. We were talking about Wall Street's obsession with forecasts. Let me give you a quote of yours and I'm paraphrasing slightly. Uh, when it comes to investing, we are concerned with actually one thing dealing with the future. Yet it's clearly impossible to know anything about the future. You can't predict. You can only prepare. So the first question is, why is the financial industry so in love with forecasts? And the second question is, what can an investor do about it?
1: Well, if I was competing for a piece of business and I walked into your living room and uh, I said, you know, look, Barry, I really have no idea what's gonna happen in the markets, in the economies, or in rates in in the coming year. And the next guy comes in, he says, I'll tell, I know exactly what's gonna happen. You know, that guy will get the business uh, uh, 90-odd percent of the time. Mm -hmm. Now, the truth is he'll give you the business because because, (laughs) because he doesn't know any better than I do. But, you know, nobody likes uh, total ambiguity. Um, And uh, yet... You know, Mark Twain said, it's not what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for certain that just ain't true. Mm-hmm. I think it's much uh, more valid and much more prudent to uh, admit when you don't know something than to act as if you do.
0: To, to say the least, I, I'm I'm fond of looking at current situations and going back a year to say, mm-hmm. hey, how many people last summer right. were saying, by the way, oil's going to get cut in half? That's right. Nobody said anything no. like that. Nobody said in advance Russia's invading the yeah. Ukraine. People had idea there were issues with with Greece. I don't think a lot of people were saying, hey, get ready for a full-on bear market in China after the, the market doubles the first six months of this that's year right. So so no doubt that that's a um, that's a process. I, here's another quote of yours that I really enjoy. We can make excellent investment decisions on the basis of present observations with no need to make guesses about the future.
1: Well, you know, I believe one of my mottos for myself is that we never know where we're going, but we sure as hell ought to know where we are. We don't know what's going to happen in the economy. We don't know what's going to happen in the market next year. But we can have a sense for the whether the market environment is hostile or friendly from what's going on around us. Mm-hmm. What are other people doing? What are they thinking? How are they acting? Um, are are, uh, are the people on radio and TV shows wildly bullish or are they very cautious? When they're wildly bullish, we should be worried. When they're <laughs> cautious, we can turn aggressive. You know, uh, Warren Buffett says, the less prudence with which others conduct their affairs, the greater the prudence with which we must conduct our own affairs. So if we know that people are throwing money at wild Uh, leveraged, structured, speculative deals, then we know that we're in an overheated environment and we should turn cautious. And I think that uh, using indicators like like those uh, can work. Nobody gets timing exactly right, Mm -hmm. uh, but the question is, uh, can you improve upon a buy and hold approach? Can Mm -hmm. you improve upon the the faulty uh, timing that, the herd engages in,
0: Make, makes a lot of sense. Um, here's another quote of yours that I I really like. I, I called called once called this extrapolation to infinity, and and you had said, rule number one, most things prove to be cyclical. Mm-hmm. Rule number two, some of the greatest opportunities for gain and loss comes when other people forget rule number one. That's right. I, explain that.
1: Well, I mean, when I was a kid in the early '70s. Uh, one of my mentors described to me the three stages of a bull market. Mm -hmm. The first stage when only a few people believed that things could ever get better. The middle stage when most people understand that improvement is taking place. And the last stage when everybody believes things will get better forever. (laughs) So the point is uh, you should know which stage you're in and you should act accordingly. And if you, if It's hard to get in in the first stage, but desirable, but dangerous to get in or stay in in the latter stage. And the question is, can you figure that out? And I believe you can.
0: Which leads us to a question. Here we are in in mid-2015. What stage of the bull market are we in?
1: well, first of all, it depends on which market you're talking about. You Most people talk about the stock market, I think, in terms of the credit market or mm-hmm. the debt market.
0: So let's but, let's talk about both okay. debt and, and equity.
1: Okay. Uh, well, first of all, let me say that the U.S. economy is doing okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, it We have a gradual, unsteady, halting, unimpressive, but intact recovery.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And no reason to think that's gonna stop anytime soon. So what we call in the business the fundamentals, uh, are, are relatively intact in this country. I don't even wanna go abroad yet. Okay. Uh, then we have to look at investor psychology uh, and then we have to look at valuations. Psychology is a little bit on the positive side. I don't think too many people are very excited about the future. Too, I don't think too many people are excited about buying today uh, and yet they are buying. Why? I call them handcuffed volunteers. Uh, People can't keep money in cash. They can't keep money in the bank. They can't keep it in money market funds because they get a return of zero. They can't buy treasuries that yield one or two. So they go out on the risk curve and they buy things that historically maybe they haven't bought because they're so unsatisfied with returns of zero, one or two.
0: So this is the, there is no alternative form of investing.
1: And, and, And so in that context, people look for what they call good relative buys. Well, this is, I like this because it's not as bad as that. Uh, you know, do you really want to buy something for your investment portfolio because it's not as bad as something else? No. Uh, you know, we'd like to buy great buys, and then we have to look at price. And the answer is on price, there's very little out there today which is a great buy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the goal of the value investor, our goal at Oaktree, the the goal of Bruce Carsh's distressed debt funds, which you described, is to buy things for less than they're worth. There's very little that you can buy today. For less than it's worth,
0: is that true on the debt side as well as the equity side? I think side?
1: it very much is.
0: So we're we're fully valued on on equity. We're fairly valued on debt. So where do you look to find value?
1: Well, that's the answer. Is there's nothing easy today. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would I I describe. You asked where are we in the cycle. I I say that most assets are on what I call the high side of fair. Uh,
0: high side of fair.
1: Yeah, and and, and and in other words, there's nothing which is. Which you, which you can buy at or below fair value. Mm-hmm. Most things are above fair value. Some are at the high part of the fair range and some are at the beginning part of the expensive range, but there are no pronounced bargains. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you do in that environment? Well, it's tough. You can go defensive, but if the economy is going to hold together for another few years, right. uh, you know, a high degree of defense today and putting money in cash at a return of zero is not going to be very satisfactory. Right. So the answer is you put money to work, but you do it carefully.
0: Selectively, carefully. Yes. I,
1: I, for, for the last four years, I think it's four years now, almost to the day, Barry, the mantra at Oak Tree has been moved forward, but with caution. Mm-hmm. I believe that that the outlook is not so bad and prices are not so high that you can't be invested. If, but on the other hand, the outlook is not so good and prices are not so low that you should be doing it with any aggressiveness. Mm-hmm. I think you must, the, the real key question, before you get to the granular question of exactly which stocks to buy, which bonds to buy and which companies, the key question at any given point in time is, should your portfolio be aggressive or defensive? What balance do you strike? If you get that wrong, you're not gonna su- succeed no matter if you're a good stock picker. And if you get it right, uh, you will succeed even if you're a bad stock picker. So the point is should be aggressive or defensive today. And I would, I think personally that you should favor defense, mm-hmm. not exclusively defense, but I think you should favor defense.
0: So you're a little more balanced in, in your perspective in terms of both aggressiveness and well, but, um, so, but
1: still, I'm favoring defense. I'm not balanced. I'm not 50-50.
0: Okay. Uh, so you're leaning a little more yes. defensive yes. Than, than you yes. typically will. You you mentioned in passing psychology. Here's another quote of yours I want to throw out related to that. The, the biggest investing errors come not from factors that are informational or analytical, but from those that are psychological, just about every investor has access to the exact same information these days. That's right. Describe this if you would.
1: Well, another way I put it is that the, the key disciplines for investment success, uh, well, certainly they include accounting and finance, but, but they also include psychiatry. Mm-hmm. So you have to understand your psyche and you have to understand the psyche of those around you and what, what is going on in the marketplace. And, uh, and uh, I believe today, uh, that people are coerced into buying risky securities mm-hmm. uh, because they don't like the return prospects on safe securities, and that this has pushed up prices in the risky asset classes and permitted uh, less sound deals to get done. And if those things are true, that, that may, that's the source of my caution today.
0: So psychology, not frothy, but valuation, fairly fully valued. Yeah. So- you're somewhat invested, somewhat balanced, a little bit on the defensive side. We're, f- we're
1: fully invested, mm-hmm. but ca- but in cautious holdings.
0: So if you'd like to hear more of my conversation with Howard Marks, please check out our podcast extras. You can find them on Apple iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg. I mentioned Howard's chairman's memos. Those are all available at OaktreeCapital.com. Be sure and follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz, and check out my daily column on BloombergView.com. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast portion of the show. Um, I'm sitting here with Howard Marks. He is the founder and chairman of Oak Tree Capital. Howard, thank you so much for uh, for doing this. I really appreciate it. Well, I just
1: want to show my kids that I'm an early adapter.
0: Here you are. You're you're not only on radio, but on Twitter and on Periscope. Um, your kids will be, your kids will be impressed with that. So previously you and I had a, a similar conversation at the Seattle CFA was that, uh, beginning of this year. That's right. That was, um, that was kind of fascinating because I'd only passed through Seattle I, previously. I'd never stayed as long as I did that week in Seattle. And that is a boom town, isn't it? It's a boom town. It's a very nice place to live. Real, really, is delightful. The weather is delightful. We ended up going to Bainbridge Island, which is about as nice a place as uh, this half of the planet has to has to offer. Let's um let's plow through some questions uh, that we had. Some stuff that I didn't get to during the radio portion, and then we'll get into some of my my favorite questions. So we did not get to discuss uh, the fact. That I bet a lot of people don't know that when you were at Trust Company of the West. You supervised some kid named Jeffrey Gunlock.
1: There was a guy named Jeffrey Gunlock, and and uh, uh, I don't know if the supervise is the right term, <laughs> uh, but I assisted him. Okay. In, in my last year there.
0: All right, and then ultimately, he uh, he left Trust Company of the West and called you and said, "Hey, it's not it's something I want to do is go out on my own. Right. What do you suggest?" And and how did you respond to Jeff?
1: Well. Uh he actually went out on his own, but the key is that he called us up and, uh, or had a representative call us and said, would you help us get started? Mm-hmm. Would you, you know, the, the, the big, when I started Oak Tree 20 years ago, people would say to me, well, what's the biggest surprise? And the big surprise is how much non-investment stuff there is to do. Oh, uh, running a Personnel, business? premises, tax, insurance, accounting, uh, uh, computers. Payroll, yes. Health I mean, it, Benefits. It's, and so you know jeff said can you help us get started because you know tcw fired him mm-hmm. and he had no preparations made and he wanted to get up and running and he didn't want to stumble because mm-hmm. then then people would say he wasn't able up to the task so so uh, we earned a piece of his company double line uh-huh. uh, by putting him in business uh, organizationally
0: uh, i'm going to assume that was a pretty good investment it was a good investment <laughs> and
1: and then and then and then we bought a, a further piece because mm-hmm. uh, we wanted to get up to 20% on the accounting rules if you have 20% we can include uh, our share of their profits mm-hmm. uh, it's called equity accounting and mm-hmm. so we wanted to be at 20 and uh, and we are our 20% happy 20% owners of double line
0: it turns out Jeff was the first show we had done here and at the time I think he was coming up on 60 or 70 billion in AUM in an incredibly fast time. Mm. I think they just celebrated their fifth anniversary. Is that right? I think that's not right. too long. Ago. Yeah, yeah. So that's really a, a fascinating. You know, you've mentioned very often cash is king and opportunities come along. Yeah, that has to be one of those great examples of being there at the right place at the right time with cash ready to to do what you want to do.
1: Well, it didn't. It didn't take us much cash. It took us some expertise, mm-hmm. and of course. Uh, uh jeff's trust in us mm-hmm. to to that he would get a good solid uh, foundation which i think he did get um and it constitutes getting lucky barry you know uh, that's right as you and i were saying before uh, it helps to be smart uh but uh, being smart is not enough right you you also have to catch a break
0: Lot, lots of smart guys but smart plus preparation plus luck right that that's that's certainly a uh Secret, speaking about preparation and, and not getting lucky, we never mentioned uh, earlier, but I, it was on my list of things to talk about. You took a small piece, if I'm reading this correctly, of Oak Tree and did an IPO with that. Yes, that's right. In 2012. Yeah. How much of the company um, was listed? It was a relatively small percentage, if memory serves. Yes,
1: I think it was uh, I think it was about 20%.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we've heard for the past 10 years how arduous going public is and all the headaches involving. What motivated you to say, all right, let's fight through that and, and become a public company?
1: We had always given ownership of the firm to the employees mm-hmm. uh, from the very beginning. You know, We started off, there were five of us who owned 100%. Right. At the end of uh, that first year, 95, we brought in 13 more people into the ownership. And we've always had about 20 25% of the employees owning uh, owning equity the ones who could who could really determine the future of the company and we thought they would want to have a way to number one know the value
0: mm-hmm. of
1: their stake and number two monetize it right uh, and you know we use it as a compensation tool and if you're giving people equity but they say I how do I know what it's worth and how do I know I'll be able to get out then it it doesn't have much power as a conversation tool. So Mm -hmm. we thought that 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 would be desirable. And then for further generational transition, uh, as my generation uh, moves on one of these days, I'd like to have a way to monetize that value, and Mm -hmm. uh, part of it, and turn the rest of it over to the other employees. So I think that public ownership played a key role in that.
0: But by the way, you mentioned making sure that uh, employees had a way to participate. That's a theme I've heard from so many people who've passed through here. Mm. Listen, these are the people who helped build the firm. Right. We want to make sure they're fully compensated right. and and have a stake in the future success of the company. Sure. It's amazing how consistently that concept comes up time, time and time again. Well, it um, might have
1: something to do with the way you choose your guests.
0: Uh, <laughs> okay, so you're saying this is not a, uh, this is a sample set error? This is right. not a... Uh, a, a, a full-on random, I, I think you may be onto something with that. So so let's go to, um, there's a question I ask all of my guests, but you've talked about this question in the past. So I want to jump right into this before I get into your book. And you have suggested people read broadly. What's the significance of reading to the investor? I think that,
1: You have to see the whole world Mm -hmm. to understand the importance of things. You have to understand other countries, Mm -hmm. other political systems, other monetary systems, be they in place today or in history. Uh, I think you have to understand different disciplines, the sciences. and uh and so forth um you have to understand how people have thought over the years um you have to um you have to be able to see cycles and some of the important cycles of the world have taken place in in decades and centuries um
0: and you're not going to get that on, in the wall street journal this morning exactly you need something with the full weight of history yeah. uh, written by somebody who's an expert in that space exactly
1: so uh, you know, if you if you if you follow people like uh, Warren Buffett and, and Charlie Munger, they say read broadly, mm-hmm. and 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 the other thing it does is it it's it just makes you think bigger. Mm-hmm. You know, this business of figuring out whether a company's going to earn sixty six cents next quarter or sixty seven uh, misses th- the bigger picture. Yeah, doesn't it doesn't help you cope with the big pictures of life, uh, big questions of life.
0: Mm-hmm. So so aside from Dodd and Graham, which I know you have mentioned many times, um, what other books did you find influential? What else do you recommend uh, investors should be familiar with?
1: Um, I have gotten a lot out of um, a book called The Short History of Financial Euphoria by uh, John Kenneth Galbraith.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, uh, loved, fooled by randomness, by Nassim Nicholas Taleb.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, uh, Against the Gods by Peter Bernstein. Sure, uh, which is really a story of wh- of risk, of risk, and how people evolved their understanding of risk and probability.
0: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: you can only you 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 can only cope with the world if you can see things probabilistically. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think it's, you know, you, you, you've talked about my dislike of forecasts. I don't like people who say this is what's going to happen next year. You put a probability uh, on you, it. Yes.
0: As long as that's a well-considered yes. probability. Just because it rained, if you say 90% chance of a sunny day, doesn't mean you're wrong. It means the 10% outcome right, exactly. came up. Exactly.
1: But so you, you, you shouldn't say this is going to happen, I'm sure. But you also shouldn't say... Three different things can happen. I have no idea which it'll be. Right. You know, you have to make a judgment about likelihoods and probabilities. Mm-hmm. That's how you have to live your life. It, you know, you, you decided whether or not to take an umbrella this morning be, based on the probability of rain.
0: 40% chance of rain at two o'clock. I have an umbrella only because now I'm in a suit and tie. Right. So the downside of the 40% right. was... Oh, uh, this gets ruined. Exactly. If I'm in jeans and a shirt. Maybe you don't care. I leave the maybe, umbrella. Maybe
1: no. you only take the umbrella if it's if it's 80. Mm-hmm.
0: Right? That's right. Okay.
1: So I think, you, you know, during the radio interview, uh, you mentioned uh, something which was the title of one of my memos, You Can't Predict, You Can Prepare. Mm-hmm. That was the tagline for, I think it was, I think it was Mass Mutual's uh, advertising uh, program a dozen years ago, and I stole it. Uh, for a memo, because it's true. We don't know what's gonna happen in the future, but we have to prepare for the things that may happen. We can't prepare for everything that may happen, so we have to do it probabilistically. And that's what Against the Gods was really about.
0: So you're preparing for the likely outcomes. What do you have to do about preparing for the, you you mentioned uh, Fooled by Randomness, what do you do to prepare for the black swans the highly improbable but enormously disruptive uh, possible outcomes.
1: What I call the improbable disaster. Mm -hmm. And one of the most interesting questions in investing is what do you do about the improbable disaster? Uh, You can't prepare for every eventuality. Uh, If you insure, if you spend money for insurance premiums against every possible outcome, then you will have protected against every negative outcome and you'll have no money left right uh, so so you, it, it's it's really interesting. you have to you have to uh, maybe there are some possible courses of action which offer an attractive expected value on average, but which entail some outcomes that you absolutely can't stand. Maybe you just avoid that. Uh, you know, I always say that I'm not interested in being a skydiver who was successful 95 percent of the time. <laughs> right. Uh, Even 99 percent of the time doesn't. So work. I don't skydive. <laughs> um, but then you you say, in some cases, that's a risk I can live with. Mm-hmm. That's I either don't think it's going to happen, or if it does happen, I don't think the consequences uh, will be uh, so unbearable. And then you take those consequences. We faced that back in '08. We had the big 11 billion dollar fund you were talking about, right. and uh,
0: the distressed asset fund. That's funds.
1: right. And we're investing in the aftermath of the Lehman meltdown when everybody thought the world was going to end. Right. That was That was an improbable disaster. Mm-hmm. We concluded that we would invest nevertheless.
0: So, so you mentioned um, a short history of financial euphoria. You mentioned Fooled by Randomness. What other books really come to mind? You know, I have on my night table... Charlie Munger's um, Poor Charlie's Almanac, yes, yep. which is which is this right. this thing, right. and I'm saving it for the winter because the weather has right. been. Peter
1: Kaufman did a great job mm-hmm. on the almanac, and, and and he he conveys a lot of wisdom. Uh, I think I think that's a really good idea.
0: Um, I know you had mentioned uh, other things of Buffett. You put out your letters, Buffett's annual letters, or something else that you have mentioned. Yeah, you really enjoy they're, reading.
1: They're, they're great. Um, they're really great. Um, there's a book out called The Warren Buffett Way. Uh-huh. for people who are interested.
0: Carol Loomis is that No, another? no,
1: Carol uh, no, uh I think it was Bob Hagstrom. Okay. Uh who wrote uh, and and uh th- I think we're on the 4th edition of The Warren Buffett Way now and wow. uh and Bob asked me to write the the introduction oh, really? to the book. And so I, I did an interest what I thought was an interesting thing. I said what is it what my theme was what makes Buffett Buffett? Mhm. Uh, and that's what the introduction is about.
0: Have you ever gone to any of the uh, Buffett annual uh, events?
1: I did go to one.
0: Uh, what was that like?
1: Well, it's it's a uh, it's a cultural phenomenon. <laughs> to uh,
0: to you know, uh,
1: it's uh, uh, the scale is great, the atmosphere is great. Everybody, it's a it's a it's a, you know it's a it's a hall full of happy people of good feeling. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the uh, the adulation of. Uh, of Warren and Charlie is, is something to behold.
0: I can imagine. Yeah. Lots of people, they've made lots of people very, very, let's call it comfortable That's right. over the decades. And and right. that would that sort of response wouldn't surprise me. You know, one of the things I found fascinating in your background is you minored in Japanese studies. That's right. Did did that ever come in handy with anything? And I'm going to put a, uh, a stop on this because we've been going so long with this. I don't want to... Uh... Give away too much of uh, well, th- I, I, the rest of the podcast. I, I, think
1: it ha- I, I think it helped shape who I am, mm-hmm. for one thing, and it helped shape the way I think. Uh, in what way? How did, how did well, studying the, Japan... the main thing was, uh, there's an element in Japanese philosophy uh, called mujo. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's kind of, uh, I, the literal translation is the turning of the wheel of the law.
0: The, the turning, turning of, of the, the wheel, wheel of the law. Uh-huh. A- a-
1: and in other words, uh, nothing ever stays the same. Uh, change and impermanence mm-hmm. are, are, uh, are forever. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I think that it's very good to understand uh, that, that uh, things don't go on forever as they are, that there will be change, and to prepare for and adapt to
0: it. So I never heard the term mujo but it certainly yeah. reminds me yeah. of uh, Heraclitus. The only constant is uh, change. It's, yes, it's, that's It's right. a similar philosophy. Um, so earlier, you also mentioned one of your mentors had advised you about the three phases of a bull mm-hmm. market. Who, who were your early mentors?
1: Oh, just the people I worked with mm-hmm. at, at City, uh, the people I met in the investment business back in back in the uh, early '70s, uh, as I recall. You know, it's a long time to remember, Barry. But mm-hmm. they, we have to. I think we used to have a group called the Third Thursday Group.
0: The Third uh, Thursday, which
1: met for lunch on the third Thursday uh-huh. uh, of of every month. You know, and I it, let's say it was '73. That means I was 27 years old. I was a kid, right. but I got to hang out with Lee Cooperman. Uh-huh. Who I know was
0: one of your guests, right? And uh, I was saying earlier, he's a boy from the Bronx. You're a boy from Queens. That's right. So we're, right. we're keeping it local. Keep so it Lee local. Cooperman was part of that Third Thursday group, as that's I
1: recall. Cool. Mm-hmm. Again, it's a long time ago, but you know uh, the people from from uh, Cumberland Group, which was one of the uh, one of the uh, early hedge funds, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, maybe Steinhardt, Feiner, Berkowitz, and mm-hmm. meeting people like like uh, Howard Lee had Bur- mentioned Howard them Berkowitz, as well. Sure, you know. And uh, maybe Carney Lawson, who who was at uh, Jennison. Jennison was the first institutional investment boutique uh, Mm -hmm. formed around uh, '69, as I recall, or '68. And uh, you know, I didn't have a, I didn't have a uh, anybody whose knee I sat on. I didn't have any one person uh, that that. uh, But I just, I was lucky to hang around with a bunch of smart people, and uh, pick up snippets here and there.
0: You strike me as a very astute observer of both human nature and other investors, and I suspect you were you were picking little bits and pieces off right. of, of all those guys. Maybe a magpie. Huh? <laughs> okay. <laughs> that was not what I was thinking of, but if you want to go with magpie, uh, I'm happy with that. So those are the investors who, who helped. Were they formative? They helped shape your view? Or were these people who, who kind of added minor course corrections over time, I think helped shape, shape my view. You know, mm-hmm. I mean,
1: it's it's it it's really intangibles. Uh, you know, I I have all these adages that I use, and uh, you know, I can't remember who gave them to me, but I got ended up with quite a collection of those, and they come in very handy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then just you 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 watch people think. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, you watch people think. Or maybe you should say, listen to people think. Uh-huh. But I mean, you know, maybe maybe thirty-five or forty years ago, uh, listening to how Lee Cooperman uh, analyzed uh, Henry Singleton and Teledyne. Mm-hmm.
0: You know, he he used that as you an know? example, yeah. one of his favorites oh, he did. when he was yeah when he was at Goldman Sachs. Right, I, I've I've heard that example yeah. uh, from other people. And well. the great
1: thing about it is that nobody liked Teledyne. Uh-huh. Hen, Henry was. Was not one of these managements who gave out forecasts or breakdowns of profits. He said, "You're on your own." When I went to see him on my first business trip of my life, <laughs> 1970, right? And and uh, you know, we said, "Well, yes. Could you tell us what you're going to earn per year for the next five years?" This was a, you know, common uh, question of management. Could you break down your earnings by it, uh, by by division? And and Henry said, "That's your job. <laughs> I run the company." Uh, and most people didn't like that. Most people thought he was crusty. He was crusty. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: Right. But with reason to be to, to not say, let me chew your food for you, you're yeah. the analyst. You figure well, out what the
1: numbers well, are. Well, the other thing is that, you know, uh, most managements want their stocks to go up because they have options or what have you. Sure. I think Henry wanted the stock to go down so that he could uh, buy out the public. Uh-huh. And, you know, he started off as a paid uh, employee of the company mm-hmm. and he ended up as a very major shareholder at the end because he used the, mo- the company's money to buy back a lot of stock uh, from uh, the public at low prices, he did, He realized that his he had a better interest in having the stock be low than high. There's a great book out now called Outsiders. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're aware of that. It's I about it's about uh, eight maverick CEOs and how they ran their companies. Uh, and, he's uh, and he's one of. And he's one. He's the he's the leader. He's the man. He's chapter one.
0: And how did tell the Teledyne story ultimately end?
1: Well, the Teledyne story ended up that that he owned it. Ended up owning a major piece of the company, and the stock ended up being very valuable.
0: Mm-hmm. Were weren't they ultimately? Am I misremembering this? Weren't they taken out by somebody or?
1: Uh, well, I think they were just taken out taken out in pieces. Mm-hmm. Yes, but of course, Teledyne is is a uh, is a is not name doesn't exist anymore, mm-hmm.
0: uh, as far as I know. No, I uh, think you're right. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll have to we'll have to look into it. But that. I mean,
1: he he, he viewed as. He viewed a, a capital as a tool that you can that you can use to the betterment of the company,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: you 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 you, could, you can use it to buy the stock back when it's cheap, not right. when it's expensive. And you don't do buybacks when the stock is high, and you don't do acquisitions with stock when the stock is low. So, and then and these people in the in the people who follow uh, outsiders. And follow this movement. It, it, they're called capital allocators, mm-hmm. and um, and this is a, a very good way to manage a company. I think
0: we've we've seen so much in terms of stock buybacks the past few years, after a huge run up in the markets. Um, what's your thoughts on on share buybacks lately? Because history tells us that management has a tendency to overpay for their own stock, sure. and, and when stocks are cheap, they have a, a, a tendency to be a little timid right. and not wanna sure. look stupid when every hey, conserve your cash, as opposed to saying my stock is cheap, I'm buying it here.
1: Well, probably just like uh, Mother Ritholtz, my mother said, buy low, mm-hmm. sell high. Sure. And why would you do the opposite? It's and, easier to do the opposite. Well, That's, it's easier to do the opposite. It's comfortable, it's emotionally, yes.
0: you know, it takes a lot of, I don't have to tell you, yeah. guys who are out buying the stock, when when you were raising the distressed fund, uh, did you get feedback from clients, your or from potential investors? Hey, listen, I know you've got a great track record, but you're crazy. The world is coming to an end. Like, did you get pushback? No, at the all?
1: well, the no, the the, the the main the main pushback we got. Remember, we started to raise the fund in 07.
0: right? And
1: uh, and uh, the main pushback we got in the beginning of 07 was there's not going to be any distress. There is no. The distress. world is too good. Uh, you know everything's going smoothly, and it's going to go smoothly forever.
0: And that was a year after housing had already begun to yes, roll over. Yes,
1: but nobody took notice, mm-hmm. right? In, in I think That's subpr- how good it was. subprime, subprime more well, subprime mortgages began to soften in uh, the first or second quarter of 06. Mm-hmm. And but they did, people didn't generalize it to the rest of the world.
0: No extrapolation. And nobody
1: said, "Well, just a minute there." People applied terribly weak standards in extending subprime mortgages. Maybe they extended, we uh, maybe they applied weak standards every place. Uh,
0: so what does that mean? If if there's weak mortgages everywhere, that's a negative, yes, not a positive. Sure, of course.
1: But also, it implies to me it implied that the system had been faulty mm-hmm. uh, because people had been making uh, uh, bad decisions and they and they weren't making them in just one place. I mean, Oak Tree turned very cautious in O uh four five six
0: mm-hmm. why on, on debt
1: well on everything we do mm-hmm. uh it, it, but, it, but most of what we do is debt but we turned very cautious why because we saw what we thought were ridiculously unsafe deals being issued right and you know I would walk into Bruce's office my partner Sheldon my partner Larry and Richard, and we would say, look at this piece of junk. Can you believe this got issued? There's something wrong if a deal like this can get issued. And so again, understanding what's going on around us, if we're in an environment in which faulty deals can readily be issued, mm-hmm. there's something wrong with the environment.
0: What What's amazing is how long it takes from the recognition right. of, hey, this is a lot of junk, yes. Till the rest of the world figures yes, it out. It, right. it literally yes. takes years.
1: Well, you know, somebody, that famous somebody, I can't remember who it was, uh, once said, uh, it takes a lot longer for things to happen than you think it could, but then they happen much faster than you think they will. You know? It
0: makes uh, perfect it, sense. Yes,
1: yeah, so you, you're right. Things, t- things don't get through to investors. Uh, other than very slowly. But then when everybody has that aha moment and says, uh, you know, we're in trouble, then the collapse comes quite fast.
0: Th- think back to the famous irrational exuberance speech yeah. in 96, That's right. you still had four more years of, right. of market upside before a fa- pretty fast and furious collapse there There too. I wonder if that, that three to four year number is, because is, you said in 04 you started to Become cautious. Yeah. Uh, it's a it's a sample set of two, yeah. but that that run of four mm-hmm. years after looking back after the fact seems to be kind of an interesting coincidence. It's, it's a small sample, but <laughs> but, but you're right.
1: I mean, look, when Alan Greenspan said, "I I I I believe I detect signs of ex- irrational exuberance," the Dow was at six thousand, right, and it exceeded ten, mm-hmm. right? Uh, if I have my numbers right, no, that's about right. Yeah, so. Uh, you know, and the peop- The point is that anybody who listened to Greenspan in, in uh, 6,000 got out of the market uh, by '09, people ruled him an idiot. Right. Uh, and uh, by the way, everybody had Buffett written off. I recall At the that. beginning of 2000 because they said he's passed his sell-by date. Right. You know, he's missed this, the tech bubble. Uh, what's wrong with him? This, this value yeah. investing right. is, right.
0: you know, that's old school. That's not going to work right. anymore.
1: Well, the greatest quote, you know, comes from, Galbraith's uh, short history of financial euphoria, and he says the, he talks about the, uh, the the shortcomings of the markets. He says one is the is the uh, uh, limited span of memory, mm-hmm. uh, and he says that anybody who remembers the old uh, bad events and cautions against the recurrence is dismissed as past their prime, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, an old basically an old foggy, That's my term, not his. Uh, and then you get a reminder that history is relevant,
0: right? There's another quote, and I don't remember with Galbraith or someone else who said one of the distinguishing characteristics about people in finance is their steadfast refusal to learn from history. Yeah, and it, it, yeah. it's really true. It's in 0708. Mm-hmm. It was as if mm-hmm. 2000 had never happened. That's
1: right. It, well, all of six years had passed. But you know the 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 point is that this uh, this dismissal of the past has helpers has handmaidens if you would and 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 one of them is that in 06 it looks like if you're merely willing to disregard the lessons of the past and and plunge in you can get rich mm-hmm. and what do people want more than anything else you know i always imagine uh, you know, those movies about Las Vegas and, and the, the, you got the angel on one shoulder saying, don't do it, it's not the right thing. And the devil sitting on the other shoulder saying, D- you know, do it, it'll be fun. Well, the devil always wins, right? Or else you wouldn't have a movie. Well, in the investing business, the, the angel sitting on one shoulder says, don't do it, it's not prudent. It, you know, trees don't grow to the sky. It's too good to be true. The, the market risk is elevated. But on the other side, the devil sitting there and he says, do it, it'll, you'll get rich.
0: And who is that devil? Because the the handmaiden to forgetting history very yeah. often is that what have you done for me this quarter? The investor yeah, class sure. So you and I are in the business, yeah. you a little longer and a lot more money, uh managing of managing other people's money. There is a very, very consistent thing that takes place yeah. every cycle where the investor class says this prudence thing has gone on long yes, enough. Yeah, Everybody else yeah. is getting rich. Yeah. Why aren't you making me rich?
1: Well, people respect people respect managers who exhibit prudence at the bottom. Mm-hmm. They say, "Boy, I wish, I wish I'd been with that guy. He didn't lose his clients any money." But at the top, when the market has doubled, nobody wants prudence. They want the guy who Full got the most out of that double. Right. This is what this is. This is uh, herd behavior. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is the this is the ticket to losing money, and the ticket to preserving capital is something called contrarian behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, very very hard to uh, do, very hard to stick with.
0: Wh- which is why you mentioned buy low, sell high. Yeah, the crowd seems to find itself constantly doing the opposite. When when that energy, when that excitement and enthusiasm is there, they're looking to. Um, they're looking to buy a top and and, and move forward. It's so, very,
1: very easy. The crowd finds it very easy to buy things that have been rising for a while.
0: And, sure. And that, very
1: hard to buy things that have fallen.
0: So in the last few minutes we have, I have a handful of questions I like to ask everybody and, and one or two more quotes of yours. So so let me run through these pretty quickly and, and we'll see if we can get you out. I know I, we have a car waiting for you shortly. Um, one of the things you had mentioned previously that I always found interesting was clients need a creed, whether it's beta versus alpha, risk control, return maximization. What's the significance of a creed? Why do investors require one? Well,
1: it's not really clients. I think it's investors or money managers need a mm-hmm. creed because you have to have something you stand by, mm-hmm. you know, uh,
0: a philosophy, a philosophy.
1: Uh, a, a religion, if you will. Mm-hmm. What do you do? What do you don't do? What do you believe in? What do you do not believe in? Uh, you know, if you if you don't have these things, then what are your signposts of your of your activity of your behavior? What would you say? I buy things that go up. That's not enough. You have to <laughs> you have to have a a system for the kinds of things you buy and how you figure out that they're a buy and and how do you and when you and when you get off the the trend and and do you believe in growth or value do you believe in forecasts or not forecasts do you believe in uh, maximization or, or or risk control uh there are many many things that you should have to make a decision about um and and uh i believe you can only you know the people that i know who are great investors all have they can state what it is they do
0: mhm they have a philosophy, they have right. a creed right. and it can be summed up very 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 simply. Right. So so let's let's go through one other quote of yours that I really like. Um and this this harkens back to your your discussion on probabilities. The future does not exist. It is only a range of po- mm. of possibilities. We have to understand that most outcomes will be determined by luck. Yeah. Explain that.
1: Well, the world and economies and the markets do not run according to, you know, Newton's laws of physics. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and if you hire an, an 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 electrician to come in your house, and he does it right, then you know that if he puts in a light switch over here and he throws that switch, the light'll go on over there every time. Mm-hmm. That's not the investment business. There's no, there are no. There are no relationships that are that dependable. There's a lot of randomness. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know Sometimes a company announces good earnings and the stock goes up. Sometimes they announce good earnings and the stock goes down. Uh, and it, it just isn't that reliable. Um, and so um, you know, we have to keep that in mind, and we have to allow for other outcomes than the one we think should happen. Mm -hmm. One of the things I try to point out is that should does not mean will. And it certainly does not mean will right away. Overpriced, if a stock is overpriced, that doesn't mean it's going down tomorrow.
0: It could stay overpriced for a long time. Or go higher. Mm -hmm. You know... uh, um, Cheap stocks get cheaper, dear stocks get dearer. That's
1: right. Lord Cain said the market could remain uh, uh, irrational longer than you can remain solvent. Mm -hmm. So you can't... You can't bet your all your money that the things that should happen will happen promptly. And that's why I feel we have to think of the future as a range of possible outcomes. And we we might bet on the one we think will happen, but we should give allowance for some of the others. Now, how much allowance, which of the others, these are the hard questions. Like I said before, how much do you, how much do you allow for the improbable disaster? You know, in, in Fooled by Randomness, Taleb talks about alternative histories. The other things that probably reasonably could have happened but didn't, mm-hmm. we're thinking about. And, and, and the point is that the world is an uncertain place.
0: Just to say the least. So speaking of uncertainty, You've been in the industry for a, a few decades now. What have you noticed that has changed? Um, what's the, the most important changes to the financial industry? And, and is this a good thing or a bad thing? Well, the
1: biggest single change is that it has become much more preoccupied with the short run, and that is very negative for the people who participate, mm-hmm. because. Uh, but it's very positive for the people who for the people who like to take advantage of other people's mistakes. Mm-hmm. The point is, many people believe, you know, we used to buy stocks five, six years at at the bank.
0: Right.
1: Uh now people think that if you own it for five or six months, it's a long time hold. Right. And and uh and uh so uh you know I I believe that you should figure out how to make money in the long run and stick to that. Now a lot of people say, no, there is no long run. It's the long run is just a series of short runs. But
0: uh, yes and no. But, uh,
1: but I don't I don't go with that. Mm-hmm. And and you know, forty seven years ago when I started working at Citibank, at the end of the year, it took a couple of days to figure out how we did that year to compute our rate of return. Then you got to the point where it, it you got it the same day. Then you got to the point where you could get it at the end of every, every month. Mm -hmm. then to the point where you could get it at the end of every day. And now every money manager worth his salt has a thing on his Bloomberg screen, which shows his return at that moment.
0: Tick by tick.
1: Tick by tick. Mm -hmm. And And that's a negative. I think it's a negative because that's not, uh, that's not what you should be thinking about. Uh, What did I make so far today? What did I make this month? And that kind of thing. You know, uh, uh, my son, Andrew, uh, is uh, uh, is is one of my most valued advisors, and uh, he gave me uh, some great inspirations for my uh, memo on liquidity. Uh, and one of them was if you don't if you don't think you can hold a stock for five years, don't even think about holding it for five minutes. You know, uh, the the real way to build wealth in the long run is to find a limited number of things with a lot of potential and not too much risk and stay with them for the long term. And, and I, the, the thing he gave me that I thought was the greatest, that made the greatest impression on me, he said, when you look at a chart of a stock which has gone up for 20 years and you look at that chart longingly and you say, boy, I wish I'd been on that stock. Think of all the days, if you'd bought it on the first day, Mm -hmm. think of all the days on which you would have had to talk yourself out of selling. Everybody looks at those charts and say, oh my God, you know, uh, uh, Apple. We use that as an example. It's up from five bucks to 500 bucks and all you had to do was buy it at five. And I I once had a friend who's talked to me about a piece of property that he could have bought X decades ago at a very low price, you know, And I said yes, and and as soon as it got to two X, you would have sold it. Right, you have to stay on for the long run. And so I think I think that this short sightedness is the worst single development, and 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 ubiquitous.
0: So before I get to my last two questions, I would be remiss if I did not mention uh, the most important thing, which is your book, which Warren Buffett. I want to give you this this I want listeners to hear this quote because it is just so um poignant and really um sums it up perfectly and uh, Buffett said when I see memos from Howard Marks in in my mail they're the first things I open and read I always learn something and that goes double for his book what was the motivation of of putting the book together and how gratifying is it to get that sort of feedback from a Warren Buffett
1: well uh, number one uh, I, I, as I mentioned, I've been writing the memo since 1990. I, I, I've been thinking uh, one way or the other since 1970. And uh, you know, I always thought that when I retired, I would write a book and pull the themes of the memos together. And, and the truth is, I got a note from, well, I was approached by Columbia, mm-hmm. uh, who was the publisher of the book, Columbia University Press, and they asked me to write a book. And then I got a, an email from Warren, and, and he said, uh, if you write a book, I'll give you a, a paragraph for the jacket. There you go. So that was enough. <laughs> uh, and so, and you know, Warren has been a great inspiration to me, uh, and uh, and a, and uh, you know, you just learned so much through associating with him, and and uh, the opportunity to to uh, do something that he suggested was something too good to pass up,
0: to to say the least. And and now I know we're we're tight on time. Let me give you my last two questions. I ask all of my guests first. What sort of advice would you give to somebody just graduating college and, and starting out in the financial business?
1: Uh, Christopher Morley, the English writer said there's only one success to live your life your way. Mm-hmm. So you know uh, I think that investing is very interesting uh, discipline and obviously can be lucrative um, but it's not for everybody. And you should figure out if it's for you. The last thing you should do is go into a career because everybody else is doing it, mm-hmm. or because it's hot, or because people say you can make a lot of money. Uh, you know, you have to spend your life in your career, and you're not going to get another one. Uh, so why waste it on something that's not for you? Uh, you know, it's been great for me, and it 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 is simpatico with my with who I am, but it's not for everybody
0: to to say the very least. And and then our final question, what is it you know about investing today you wish you knew when you began 47 years ago? Um and I love that you stop and really contemplate yeah. these questions before uh jumping into them.
1: Well, I I think that the the, the whole aspect of number 1 contrarian behavior and number 2 uh Uh, understanding what's going on around you and basing your activities uh, in response to that behavior, uh, I think these are the keys. You know, when you're a kid, you come out and you start thinking that if you can just find a stock whose earnings are going to rise fast, that's the key to success. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then as you do it longer, you learn that there's so much more to it.
0: So it's it's situational awareness first right. and then knowing where and when to be a contrarian exactly. um is that Howard thank you so much for being so generous with your time and and s- staying with us um the full geez, almost 90 minutes uh people want to find your memos it's at oaktreecapital.com you have the full history of memos yeah, that I are there I think they're
1: almost all there some um were the ones that were originally written on papyrus are not <laughs> right. are not available anymore. No cuneiform anymore. is right. posted but on the site. but they're almost and all. And the there. book and the book, you know, uh, they're, they're Give just, us the full title. Well, it's, call, it's called it's called the the well. The first book was called the most important thing, uncommon sense for the thoughtful investor. Mm-hmm. That came out in 2011, Columbia University Press. And then a year or two later, they brought out something called the most important thing illuminated, which mm-hmm. has uh, an additional chapter. And commentary from myself and a number of uh, prominent investors,
0: and it's annotated along throughout the throughout the book. Yeah. So you say something, and other people explain right. uh, explain what you mean. Uh, Howard, thank you so much for this. You, you've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. I want to thank Mike Batnick, my head of research, Matt, my engineer, and Charlie Vollmer, uh, my producer. If you've enjoyed this conversation, look up an inch or down an inch on iTunes, and you could see any of our prior 49 um, Masters in Business. You are our 50th, and and thank you so much for your time.
1: Pleasure. You're listening to Masters in Business with Barry Ritholz on Bloomberg Radio. Do you love Elon Musk?
0: Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you.